Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. August 6th, 2014, 22 hours, 18 minutes, 41 seconds. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Hey, um, I like to report a blue truck that was stolen earlier today. Okay, and do you know who stole it? This guy named Sebastian. Is it your truck? What? Is it your truck? No, um, he's my friend and he stole it earlier today. Okay, you need to call the police directly at 986? Yeah. 6222? Yeah. And when you get the recorded message, press 8. That'll take you directly to that person. Tina Fontaine did call in to tell police that Sebastian or Raymond Cormier did in fact steal a truck. It set in stone the fact of where she was and what time and date she was there. Her displeasure with Raymond was enough to motivate her to make that call. And it gives us just that little nagging certainty that there was in fact a reason for Cormier to hurt her. I am Bonnie Lee your host of Writing About Crime, and I'm searching for the disconnect in true crime cases that make them different than they appear on the surface. This is part two of the story of Tina Fontaine, a 15-year-old Indigenous girl whose body was found near the Alexander Docks in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Someone murdered the young girl, and today I'm looking for a reason why. So please, don't leave me. Sarah Holland and her circle were all heavily into drugs the summer of 2014, and all, to a greater or lesser extent, had criminal records. Sarah for assault and breach of recognizance, and was estranged from her family because she had a history of abusing alcohol and doing drugs. Tyrell had a record for common assault and had been seen three times previous for convictions of failure to comply with a court order. He had demonstrated a disposition for violent behavior. Ernest DeWolf had a history steeped in crime. He was convicted on a sexual assault charge back in 1987 and had two charges of armed robbery. No, but again, this investigation is uh, very much a priority for us. Police say the 15-year-old was an exploited youth. Fontaine came from a broken home. Her father was murdered. Relatives say she was known to run and did. Police issued one missing persons report in July, another in August after Fontaine was put into foster care in Winnipeg. The teen's last Facebook post to her uncle on August 3rd. On the run again, eh? He asked. Nope. After the August party where Sarah overheard Raymond and Tina arguing, Sarah spent a few days with Ernest at a hotel. She returned to the 22 Carmen Avenue Street home to find Raymond, Tyrell, and his cousin Jay all hanging out at the address. By now, she had seen news of Tina being missing and verified it by her picture in the newspaper. Upon returning that day, she brought it up. 
curious to see what kind of reaction she would get. She told them that Tina was found in the river and directly asked Raymond if he did it, adding Tina was only 16 years old. He responded with a stern no and added, this shouldn't have happened. She was a good kid and I feel bad. Tyrell noticed that Raymond's response to Tina's age was, holy shit, I guess that's why she didn't put out. Ernest DeWolf, who was with Sarah when she heard the news, had an on-again, off-again friendship with Raymond. He recalled that in August, he saw Tina Fontaine sleeping on a living room futon. She was with her boyfriend, Cody. When he asked about the couple, Raymond claimed that he had slept with her. Ernest was disgusted. He saw Tina as almost like a child because her build was so small. He questioned Raymond. Really? She's kind of young. Raymond responded that she was 18. But Ernest was skeptical and he didn't believe that she was actually of age. He recalled back to August 15th when his payday fell close to his birthday. He took the day off work to get high with his friends at 22 Carmen. He had heard a story about Raymond arguing with Tina, so he asked Raymond if that was true. Raymond said he was making sexual advances towards Tina and it was creeping her out. So shortly after she left, he decided to follow her down the alley and that was when she threatened to rat him out about stealing the truck. He said it was her way to get him to leave her alone. Ernest asked Raymond what he did with the truck. He said he had simply sold it. Ernest told him that he was uncomfortable with all of this. He didn't like Raymond's behavior, bringing the cops around to 22 Carmen. That was where they all partied and did drugs. Raymond told him that he had talked to Tina the day before and he took care of it. Ernest didn't think anything was sinister about that, so he dropped the issue. When then, almost a month later, on September 17th, Winnipeg police found a stolen truck. Police constable Matthew Garaluk was in general patrol and he received a call to check on the well-being of a man. He had a bloody hand and was seen somewhere in the area of Portage Avenue and Rouge Road. When he arrived, he found Schneider's stolen truck, now with a plate registered to a GMC Sonoma and a smashed driver's side window. The truck had been missing for 43 days. There was no forensic evidence or DNA found that would link Tina or Cormier to the truck. But the mitochondrial DNA profile developed from blood in the cab of the truck could not be ruled out as belonging to Tyrell Morrison. Blood from the broken glass belonged to a man named Kyle Canada. Police testified they tried to speak to him twice, but he wouldn't say where he got the stolen vehicle from. A big part of the investigation hinged on identifying the bedding that Tina was found wrapped up in. Officers tracked down close to a thousand customers who bought the same duvet cover. But police didn't tell them exactly why they wanted to know about their purchases. Sergeant O'Donovan, an officer with the homicide unit, said the customers went to great lengths to help out, obtaining photos of the bedding in other countries where they sent it as a gift, or providing proof of the bedding being at a cabin or at other family members. Of the people, 
who had the Chloe Green duvet cover purchased from Costco. Many said that they'd donated the bedding. It had found its way to places like the Salvation Army or other thrift stores. This is notable because Raymond had claimed he obtained most of his bedding from the Salvation Army. In September that year, investigators were able to locate the home in the eastern side of the city that Tina had been to several times. Tina herself was able to aid the investigation because her call to 911 established her whereabouts and who she had been with that day. Her interaction with Robert Sango on the street after making the call was also key in that he was able to inform investigators that she had been creeped out by an older man and she had a bad feeling that she was being followed. At the end of that September, Ernest DeWolf was incarcerated at Milner Ridge Correctional Center. He called police working on the homicide investigation and he told them to go to 22 Carmen Avenue. He advised them to talk to Sarah Holland and her boyfriend Tyrell Morrison, as well as Raymond Cormier. He informed them that before he went back to jail, Cormier, who was 52 at the time, told him that he had sex with 15-year-old Tina. He said that Cormier told him Tina threatened to call the police and report that he'd stolen a truck. Raymond had told Ernest that he had spoken to her and straightened it out. Ernest said he didn't take that to mean anything sinister at the time, but he wanted to let police know after he learned that Tina had been killed. On October 1st, two officers drove to Milner Ridge to talk to Ernest. Two other officers went to 22 Carmen Avenue. They wanted to interview Tyrell. When police arrived, Raymond tried to run away from them. He was arrested and interviewed for two and a half hours. He denied having anything to do with Tina's death. He was jailed for unrelated outstanding warrants and he remained in custody until June of 2015. Once released, Winnipeg police wiretap Raymond Cormier's apartment located at 400 Logan Avenue. They arranged to have Cormier live there when he was released from jail. For the next six months, officers listened in on his conversations. An undercover officer also set up in an apartment down the hall and he befriended Raymond, who was again using the name Sebastian. The officer, along with another female officer, staged a domestic assault to see how Sebastian would react. The female officer pretended to be unconscious while another person carried her body out to a truck. Undercover police also convinced Raymond to do some work for them and flew him to British Columbia as part of a ploy. He believed he was delivering a package for a crime syndicate. Officers also listened in on all conversations that Raymond had in his home with others and in person or on the phone. They even gained insight from comments that Raymond made to himself while alone in the suite. Late that summer, a funeral service for Tina was held at the St. Alexander Roman Catholic Church at the Sagin First Nation in Manitoba. It was a very hard day for the small community 
and many people attended to show their support for the family. As the church bells rang on a cold gray day, friends and family embraced and wept as Tina Fontaine's casket was carried past. Her Aunt Robin Fontaine can't come to terms with the loss. She's been stolen from us, you know, it's like, she's just so outgoing and happy. Tina Fontaine was 15 years old with a troubled past and a history of running away. She was in foster care in Winnipeg for a month when she went missing again. Last Sunday, her body was pulled from the Red River, wrapped in a bag. This is a child that's, that's been murdered. Um, I think, you know, society would be horrified if somebody put, uh, if we found uh, a litter of kittens or pups in the river in this condition. This is a child, so I mean, society should be horrified. Police are investigating. Her death adds to nearly 1,200 cases of murdered and missing Aboriginal women across the country. Police talked to Tina's boyfriend when he returned for her funeral. They agreed to meet in Winnipeg, and he showed police three places that he and Tina Fontaine visited together. One was a home at 520 Alexander, and then a home at 686 Alexander, where officers found a tent in the backyard. By the winter, on December 8th of 2015, a 53-year-old Raymond Cormier otherwise known as Sebastian and Frenchie, was arrested in Whistler, B.C. He was brought back to Winnipeg on December 9th, where he was charged with second-degree murder for the death of Tina Fontaine. Public outrage and the family's appearance in the media was bringing more and more attention to the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous females here in Canada. Information discovered by the media began to highlight the fact that several people in roles assigned to protect children just like Tina had encountered her in the days and even hours before she went missing. This began to draw even more attention to her murder and the events leading up to the discovery of the missing girl's body. It horrified the community and was the fulcrum that was going to force people to pay attention to the protocol and enforcement around interactions with Indigenous females that are at high risk. During the time between Cormier's arrest and his trial date, Raymond did something highly unusual. That November, he spoke very candidly and openly with a local journalist about his case and how he had been set up by law enforcement for a murder that he had no part of. Katie Nicholson, a senior reporter with the CBC Manitoba's I-Team investigative unit, put in a request. She requested to the Brandon Correctional Institute that she would like to gather a comment from Raymond about his case. He had recently filed an official complaint against the Winnipeg Police Service and she was hoping to get a line on what the reason was for that complaint. Within a matter of only hours, he responded. Immediately, he told her that he had been strongly advised against speaking with any media about his case, but it was all becoming too much. He claimed the good public was missing important details, and he wanted to set that right. 
He told her the Mr. Big Sting had been set up completely unjustly. The police set him up in an apartment and then sent in undercover officers to stage a mock murder. His claim was that he knew immediately that it was all a setup. And when he was asked by an undercover officer to help clean the crime scene, he was simply playing along. He noted that he was asked pointed questions about his knowledge of removing blood from walls to test his knowledge and experience. And all the while, he was in full knowledge of who he was dealing with. Over a few years, he continued communicating with Katie and she got to see more of what was behind the face everyone feared in the media. He made claims about his harsh childhood and how his parents neglected him. His home regularly housed boarders and between them and his immediate family, he witnessed a lot of alcohol abuse and violence. He told Katie he started getting into trouble with the law as time moved on, he became involved with sniffing solvents and using crack, meth, and intravenous drugs. The years of substance abuse had left him paranoid and unbalanced. Raymond confided some personal information. He told Katie that he had several brothers and sisters, but since his incarceration, only one sister communicated with him. He also revealed he had children of his own, two sons, of which he only spoke to one, and the other he had no knowledge of, and a daughter that he was unsure if she even knew was aware of him in any capacity. He wasn't always pleasant. He would call her to complain about unfair or inaccurate reporting in the news and regularly would call her to tell her that he was frustrated and ready to fire his lawyers. Most times his hostility was never pointed towards Katie. Only one time, when she came to him with a claim that a source made and would not reveal the source. He flew off the handle. He abruptly called the next day though to offer an apology. She had witnessed his so-called hair trigger temper before, so it was a thing. One of the biggest points of contention that fell with Winnipeg Police Chief Danny Smith. Raymond was always sensitive about the implication that he had run to Vancouver to avoid capture, when in fact, the Mr. Big Sting had arranged for him to fly there. He felt that it was misleading and it showed his serious concern for the optics the case was presenting. He didn't like the general public believing that. His main claims revolved around admissions that he had lived a criminal life and was not a saint by any means. But... He would never murder a 15-year-old girl. He had never slept with her and that he was personally revolted by how wrong it was to do that to someone. He remained in custody, burning through the days and months sketching vividly detailed wizards, dragons, and other fantasy-style pictures. He even claimed that this fantasy world he created had its own language. The trial began on January 29th in 2018. Raymond Cormier pleaded not guilty to the charge of second-degree murder in the case of Tina Fontaine. The first expert to present evidence was Officer Kevin Powell of the Winnipeg Police Service. He is an expert in police underwater search and recovery, and he was brought in to highlight his opinion on how long Tina was in the water. 
he told the courts that there are some variables that would make it impossible to determine the exact timeline. However, there are some guidelines that can be weighed upon. A full body float is usually between seven to 10 days. From this, he observed that Tina had been in the water for at least one week. He also noted that the captain of the Selkirk boat previously had said he believed that what caused Tina's body to dislodge and float to the surface was the boat driving into the docks. Kevin Paul claimed that the rocks in the bedding would have not been heavy enough to keep a body from surfacing indefinitely, but would delay the timeline. He also reported that there would be suction from the muddy water and entanglements that would hamper the timeline as well. He also clearly stated that he could not indicate where Tina was placed when she entered the water. Christopher Ketty also testified. He appeared as a civilian member of the RCMP. He was there to offer testimony on toxins and to highlight the toxology reports. His testimony gave insight into the levels of alcohol and marijuana in Tina's system. He noted that Tina's alcohol level was 0.099%, which may not accurately reflect the level at the time of death, because there would be a higher level of concentration in the chest cavity fluid than in the blood. He also testified that her marijuana level was high, but not fatal by itself or combined with her alcohol level. No other drugs were identified in the toxicology testing. Dr. Dennis Ree, an expert in forensic pathology, was the next witness. Dr. Ree was called to give his opinion on the cause and the manner of death. He was also called to give his opinion on the time that may have elapsed between the discovery of Tina Fontaine and the time of death. He testified that it was a rough estimate that by the time the body was found, Tina Fontaine would have been dead for three to seven days. Dr. Ree qualified that his opinion saying that the time could have been as short as three days or as many as eight or nine days. He testified that the cause was undetermined. Dr. Ree ruled out any assault which would have left major damage. He did, however, allow that it is possible to have a lethal assault such as the act of smothering without major injury. He also noted the discovery of Tina Fontaine suggests her death as highly suspicious and that common sense would suggest that she had perished at the hands of another. Dr. Ree suggested it could have been caused by drowning, which is to say Tina Fontaine could have been alive at the time of submersion. He noted other important facts as well, testifying that no obvious drug or toxins caused her death, suggesting that the drug gabapentin may have been in her system, but there were no signs of it on the reports. According to Dr. Ree, there was no sign of sexual assault. Tina Fontaine's clothes were intact and not torn, and because of the river and, or, time, putrefaction occurs and destroys the ability to detect semen or trace evidence. The doctor also pointed out there was no evidence of aspiration, in the sense that nothing was trapped in her airways, and that no evidence suggested that she could have self-smothered 
by high levels of any drug. Similarly, he noted that there was no evidence of a weakened or compromised cardiovascular system or any kidney disorder. The jury also heard evidence from Constable Susan Roy Hagman of the Winnipeg Police Service. She had several years of experience and training as a forensic identification specialist. She described the case as unique, no crime scene per se, only a submerged body, which water and decomposition had affected the ability to find trace evidence. She testified that there was no forensic or trace evidence to link the accused to the duvet, the body, or the truck. Constable Roy Hagman also noted that there was no forensic evidence linking other suspects to Tina Fontaine's body, the duvet, or the truck in question. Dr. Amarjit Kahal testified as a forensic mitochondrial expert. He discussed the benefit of the DNA testing. He suggested three potential explanations for the results. A conclusion may exclude someone, be unable to exclude someone, or finally, it may be inconclusive if the sample is not sufficient. He was asked to locate the profiles from three sources, the duvet cover, the truck, and Tina Fontaine's remains. The links we're searching for were between Tina and the accused Raymond Cormier, as well as Tyrell Morrison and finally Sarah Holland. The duvet had three hairs and four cuttings. Dr. Cajal could not exclude Tina. Then the remaining 14 hairs from eight different people were all tested. Dr. Cajal excluded Raymond, Tyrell, and Sarah. The vaginal swab hair excluded Raymond, Tyrell, and Sarah. The truck was swabbed, and on one of these swabs taken from the truck bed, there was a mixed profile. That swab excluded Tina, Raymond, and Sarah, but not Tyrell Morrison. It was deemed this wasn't really significant as a mixed mitochondrial DNA cannot be used to calculate exclusion probability and in fact have a real risk of false inclusion. Next, Susan Boris was the expert DNA specialist that had tested the samples in the role of civilian specialist with the RCMP. Samples were taken from 22 Carmen Avenue and had contained four profiles, Sarah, Tyrell, Ernest DeWolf, and Raymond's where it could be determined all of the swabs were blood. She testified that the only profile she found on the duvet was that of Tina's. She then testified that there were several swabs taken of the truck. The only matches she found were one for Donald Schneider on the headrest, and on a straw, she found a match for Kyle Canada. He was in the system for a previous conviction. Miss Boris made it clear that no DNA of the user of a blanket that was immersed in water for a week would necessarily be found after immersion into a river. Particularly if a decaying body was wrapped in that blanket. Water, bacteria, 
and UV light, as well as the current and bacteria present from the putrefaction of a body, all lead to the small likelihood of finding DNA that had been on the duvet cover. Audio was played during trial from body pack and probe intercepts. The intercepts were obtained during a six-month undercover sting that was called Project Sticks. Those recordings resulted from interactions with undercover officers and Raymond Cormier. The other recordings were taken from probes that were placed in Raymond Cormier's apartment. Those involved him talking to other unidentified or unknown persons. Also, the details of pre-charge interviews were described to the jury, and portions of the interview were played for them on video screens during the trial. Raymond Cormier was arrested on October 1st of 2014. At 4.16 p.m., he was interviewed until almost 11 p.m. that night. One of the interviewing officers was also involved in the arrest, Sergeant Wade McDonald. Raymond protested that he was not involved with the murder, saying, Don't focus on me. I didn't do it. And I don't know who did it. I don't even know. He described seeing Tina at Sarah Holland's and said he had sold her bike for two grams of weed and that upset her. So she left angry. He followed her out of the house as she continued yelling and screaming. And so after some back and forth, he threw a bag of weed at her feet. He didn't have any other interaction or hear any more of her until he learned that she was murdered. He told the interviewers that they weren't that close. He also mused, did she get murdered after she left me or did it happen the next day? Clarifying, he was only trying to figure out who committed the murder. He told them he had only seen Tina no more than 10 times and that the last time he saw her, it was the first time he saw her without her boyfriend Cody in their company. He was directly questioned about sleeping with Tina, where he hastily responded, no, she's 16. At first, I didn't know that, qualifying that he had zero sexual contact with her, and later telling the interviewers that he hoped they find this piece of shit. He was also careful to include his disgust at being asked about having sexual contact with Tina. He claimed that would make him a pedophile. He did acknowledge that Tina threatened to call the police on the night that they were arguing outside because he had stolen or sold her bike. On questioning about the truck, he denied ever having stole a vehicle. By the second half of his discussion with police, he was less accommodating and he seemed more aggressive. He told police that he never fucking hurt that little girl. After speaking to a lawyer, he said, I'm telling you right now, I'm not the person that did that to that girl. In his statements to police, there was often a long preamble, a lot of qualifying before he would simply answer the question that they posed to him. Almost as if he was making some time to consider his answers for consistency. He also remained silent or simply didn't comment for some questions. Of course, this would be fully his right to not answer any questions that he felt he didn't want to 
but noted. During Project Styx, Raymond was recorded during conversations with police in several locations and with people in his living area, including out loud self-talk while he was alone. The undercover officers that recorded some discussions were Moazin Sadir and Constable Lisa Dreger. Sadir noted that Raymond was not shy about discussing Tina and he often raised the subject during early stages of contact with the undercover officer. He told him that he had been arrested for Tina's murder, but that he didn't do it. He said he wanted to sleep with Tina the night that she arrived at 22 Carmen without her boyfriend for the first time. When he discovered she was only 15, he was recorded saying he wasn't going to bang her no more. Then, at other times, he was recorded saying, Tina Fontaine got killed because we, I, found out she was 15. And she died because somebody didn't want to go to jail as a Skinner. Skinner is a word used in prison to describe a pedophile. Later, Raymond told the officer that if he had to do it over again, he would fuck her properly and go to jail for that. Adding to the story that it's right on the shore. So what do I do? I threw her in. And going back, too, there may or may not be any problems, but somebody may have seen the truck. In a later conversation, he stated that unfortunately, there's a little girl in a grave someplace screaming, finish the job, ending his comment with, guess what? I finished the job. Witness evidence was difficult to pinpoint as favorable or destructive to the case against Raymond. Tyrell said that Raymond, on August 6th, had his head in Tina's lap. In one police video, Raymond confirmed his sexual interest in Tina. And in that same statement, he admitted to making comments directly to her about banging her or getting a blowjob. Ernest DeWolf said that Raymond had a duvet cover he provided a description to the officers. He then identified the Costco Chloe Green photo, the same one that Ida and Chantel Beardy chose. Ernest claimed Raymond told him that he met up with Tina again after the August 6th argument. This may support the statement that Tina made to Kim Shute on August the 8th, telling her that Raymond and her were friends again she was expecting Raymond to replace her sold bicycle and she felt that things had been repaired between the two of them. She told Kim she was getting the bike from Sebastian and then said he's a 62-year-old meth addict. Ernest said that Raymond told him he had stolen the truck with the tools. Glenn McDonald saw Raymond in the truck as described and in possession of a bunch of tools, which later were found to belong to the owner of the vehicle. Donald Schneider. He testified that the blue Ford F-150 was stolen on August 6, 2014. The problem for this case was his character. Ernest DeWolf had a record, including a sexual assault from 1987 and two charges of armed robbery. As well, he was heavily into drugs during the summer of 2014. When he was returned to prison, he deemed it to be as a direct result of Raymond Cormier ratting him out. 
Defense counsel suggested he may have a motive to make claims about Raymond Cormier. Similarly is when Ida Beardy was asked to identify Raymond Cormier and she looked at him and said, that sick bastard there. The point was made that again, there could appear there was a demonstration of personal bias against the defendant. Possibly that was in fact the case. The other possibility is Ida felt that Raymond was a sick bastard. She was being upfront and honest, regardless of giving testimony in a court of law. Not a bad quality if you look at it from the other side. The prosecution's theory was that when Raymond Cormier ran from 22 Carmen on October 1st, as the police arrived to question Sarah Holland about Tina's murder, a foot chase ensued. They believed he ran because he thought they were there to see him about Tina, not because of what they termed Mickey Mouse warrants. He appeared much too afraid and determined to the officers to be running from charges of a stolen bicycle, which was his later claim. Raymond repeatedly told police that October he did not steal the truck or the tools. He delayed admitting that he had the truck and that it was stolen and claimed it was black. He was told he would not be charged in the truck theft, but his lies continued and he said he was baffled by the assertions claiming he had never stolen any vehicle in Winnipeg. He said he had a black truck, but it was not stolen. The assumption then was that he lied out of fear. He didn't want police to find the truck because someone may have seen him as he disposed of the body, or that evidence may have remained in the truck and would be found. Sarah saw the tools in the kitchen on August 6th, the day that the truck was stolen. Glenn McDonald saw the tools in the kitchen at 22 Carmen and saw Cormier with a 4x4 dark-colored truck with a crew cab. The tools that Raymond Cormier sold to him were identified by the owner, Donald Schneider. Ernest DeWolf said that Raymond had stolen a blue Ford F-150 with lots of tools. He said that he was told directly by Raymond that the truck was stolen. So the lies were to cover up something. The question seemed fairly answerable. Why would Raymond Cormier want to murder Tina? It was believed Raymond wanted to silence her threats to call police about him stealing the truck. He also wanted to quiet her from repeating that he made sexual advances at a child and that he provided drugs to her. Kim Shute is the CFS worker who had the conversation with Tina on August the 8th, the last day she was seen alive. Tina told her that she was expecting to meet with Sebastian to receive a bike from him. This is right during the time that Raymond claimed to have met with her and to have cleared up everything after their argument. After that, on August 17th, she was found in the river. Dr. Ree estimated that she would have been deceased for about three to seven days. Kevin Paul, the underwater search and recovery expert, suggested that her body had been in the water for at least one week. The timing fit right into the theory that was the prosecution's timeline set forward. And what links Cormier to the murder is the duvet. Ida Beardy and Chantel Beardy, as well as Ernest DeWolf, all were shown photos from that style series of duvets, 
It was sold locally at Costco. When Sergeant Stalker asked Ida, what does this mean to you? And showed her a photo of the duvet. Her reaction was immediately blown away, declaring, that's the blanket that Frenchie brought to the house. Later, Chantel was shown a different photo of the same duvet and her eyes lit up. Her reaction was almost the exact same face of recognition. Sebastian's blanket, I'm absolutely certain he had it, she said. When Ernest DeWolf was shown the blanket, he stated that it looks like Ray's blanket, but he added he couldn't be 100% sure, but it did look like it. What a boy. At the trial, the defense argued that there was no direct evidence that Tina and Raymond ever met after their argument on August 6th. Direct evidence as opposed to witness evidence. People saying so, basically. They also pointed out that she was somewhat involved in the sex trade. Cody Mason also testified that Tina had some involvement in the drug trade and used illicit drugs, inferring that she would have been involved in the drug subculture. So there may be motive for those individuals to cause her death, as she had knowledge of their activities. These details the defense proposed left Tina vulnerable to all kinds of unpredictable dangers. Her environment and demonstrated lifestyle could mean that someone may have hurt her and had no relation to the events involving Raymond Cormier. It was also pointed out that there's no direct evidence leading to the murder and Raymond in terms of the stolen truck and the duvet. Nothing could link them forensically. And if anyone was looking for a forensic files type aha moment, there wasn't going to be one of those in this case. That worked in the defense's favor. Other observations were made for the jury to consider, like Tyler Morrison. In his cross-examination, it was pointed by Mr. Kavanaugh that he had an equal opportunity to assault or harm Tina. He simply responded no, but the defense argued that he had means, opportunity, and propensity to kill Tina. He physically assaulted Sarah Holland, and he is or can be violent with women. In 2014, he was convicted of common assault, and he had 13 previous convictions of failing to comply with the court order. Something to consider if you're deciding if he is the sort of person who may commit an offense similar to the murder of Tina. Also, Tyler had access to the Ford F-150 and claimed he was in the bed of the truck. Ernest DeWolf said that the truck keys were in the living room on the coffee table. And to give even more to chew on, Tyler could not be excluded as a contributor to the blood found in the bed of the truck. Dr. Cahill did state that this is not statistically significant due to it being a mixed sample, but he wasn't excluded so chicken, egg. Then the fact he would have had access to the duvet, as it may have been present at 22 Carmen with some of Raymond's things. Could all of these arguments add up to reasonable doubt? The only direct evidence the judge acknowledged was the potential admissions that Raymond made during the Sticks investigation. This is devastating if you poll anyone about their feelings on Mr. Big Stings. 
Yet, to be fair, cases that are mainly circumstantial are not as unfavorable as they may seem at first glance. Not every case will have forensic evidence or a visual recording of the crime being committed. Case in point, for a long time, most felt that if someone claimed to be a direct witness, that this case would be closed. We now know that evidence given by a witness account is much less reliable than we once believed it was. It is often the case that the big picture of the total evidence is much more of an indication of what is in fact a true account. The prosecution made these implications known, rounding up key points for the jury to consider. Tina's death was caused by an unlawful act. She was smothered, or she was submersed while still alive. It can be inferred by the attempt to conceal her body and that hiding on its own account is a wrongful act. Raymond's admissions that he finished the job and that she was dead by sunset and it's right by the shore I threw her in are incriminating comments, especially considering he later claimed to be fully aware. I don't believe that I should note that he was under surveillance. He told Ernest that he saw her and took care of the problem. Wink, wink. As for opportunity, Tina told people that she was expecting to get a new bike from Sebastian. She was available to him. He was aware of her being around and could easily contact her. There was a plan in place to meet and he acknowledged that he did meet with her. Raymond told Ernest that he had met and spoke to her after August 6th. He didn't want her to report him about the truck and had expressed a fear of being known as a skinner. Yet the defense was implicit. Raymond consistently denied killing Tina. During the Sticks investigation, he said he wanted to find her killer and that he suffers regret about what he said to her on the last time that they met. The defense was asserting that his denials, even under secret surveillance, should be, at a very minimum, reasonable doubt. They claimed comments that were recorded were not admissions of guilt, but rather his non-involvement in her death. The defense also claimed that the duvet could not be linked to Raymond because the witnesses that claimed it was the same were not credible people and they were not reliable. There was no DNA or any forensic link to Cormier or to the truck that they claimed transported her. And in their argument, the threshold of proof was not met, not for a conviction of second-degree murder. The jury was given instructions for deliberation, and soon everyone would be watching their notifications closely to see if Raymond Cormier would indeed be found guilty of murdering Tina Fontaine. This is a very difficult and tremendously sad day for, for our people. This is not the outcome anybody wanted. The systems, everything that was involved in Tina's life failed her. 
We've all failed her. We as a nation need to do better for our young people, all of us. Indigenous people, especially for our young people. This is a message to them that, sh that is probably discouraging, saying that it's okay to kill our indigenous young people. It is not okay. 